Good day, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of Pop AB's COVID-19 Briefing for Tuesday, September 7th, 2021. Today's conversation looks beyond Alberta and explores the question, how does Canada as a whole move beyond COVID-19 from coast to coast to coast? With experts from British Columbia, Alberta, Manitoba, and Ontario, we are hoping to start a national dialogue on the need for a collective response to protect Canada as the Delta wave of COVID-19 takes hold. We are live streaming today from the traditional and ancestral territory of many people. Within a cross-Canada digital landscape, we wish to take time to acknowledge all the Inuit, Métis, and First Nations people that call this land home. Please take this moment to reflect on your own relationship with the people and the lands on which you are currently situated. Today's conversation is being shared in ASL and simulcast with a French-language translation. To ensure access to completely accurate information, closed captioning will be uploaded after the live stream is complete. This national conversation for the public is being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. The views of our panelists are their own and do not represent any institutions they may be affiliated with. We have collectively gathered here as concerned Canadians attempting to ensure that everyone in the country has access to as much information concerning COVID-19 as possible and the nationwide impact of regional policies. In addition to a brief COVID-19 update for Canada, we will focus today's conversation on exploring a path forward for all Canadians. From wherever you are joining us, thank you. I would like to welcome Dr. Joe Vipond to give a brief overview of the COVID-19 situation in Canada, followed by a roundtable of introductions of our visiting panelists. Hi, everybody. Uh, it's, uh, it's great to be here, and it's great to see the um, Protect Our Province Alberta group um, bringing together such an esteemed set of panelists. It's really no surprise that Alberta has become the denialists of this grassroots effort to... Uh, to improve our conversation in, in the country. Um, we've just had such poor policy throughout um, the pandemic, uh, which has really accelerated over the last six weeks. And, and we, we really feel as a province quite uh, abandoned by our, our governors. And um, I think uh, in some ways, you know, the same way that we've reached out to municipalities to fill in some of the gaps, this is a hope that maybe some of the, the, the federal leaders will, will pledge to fill in some of the gaps at the national level. Protect Our Province Alberta got together in late July following the announcement by our Chief Medical Officer of Health that they would be cancelling testing, tracing and isolation um, and essentially um, dismantling any and all uh, COVID responses. Um, so we got together uh, a bunch of physicians, scientists and, and, uh, and just grassroots activists to first get together to publicly protest in the streets, um, both in Edmonton and Calgary and Red Deer and elsewhere. Um, and then over the last 10 days, we've started to move towards providing information uh, to the public of Alberta and, and data interpretation. So this is our a bit of a branch out for us. This is the first time for a call to action um, to our, our national political leaders. Um, at the moment in Alberta, we are uh, basically uh, in big trouble. Uh, the numbers are, are incredibly high. The last set of numbers we have are on Friday. They're no, no longer reporting on the weekends because apparently uh, COVID ended back in July. That's what we've been told. Um, and, and now we see that uh, we have overwhelming uh, 
uh, acceleration in uh, our hospitalizations, our, our ICU patients, and, and even the start of, of deaths. Um, so nothing good happening here at the moment. And which is why we've worked this asking for this conversation on national standards. Um, I personally have always looked uh, to Atlantic Canada with uh, supreme amounts of jealousy. Um, they really seem to have nailed it. Um, I know it's been derided in the past, but so far in this pandemic, the COVID zero policy um, that has been pursued by the, the North and by Atlantic Canada and by some other jurisdictions in the world like New Zealand uh, has been the only policy that's been successful. It's really hard to battle um, uh, exponential growth. There have been some mini waves in Atlantic Canada. They've successfully tamped them down every time because they've they've just reacted. And in the in the in betweens, they've had relatively um, good uh, amounts of freedom and and uh, and safety. So I wouldn't mind actually bringing up those slides, Michelle. If you have those there, we can take a look and just compare uh, Atlantic Canada to the rest of the province. Um, as we transition, no. As we transition, as we transition into your slides, Dr. Vipond, I would just like to let everyone at home watching know that we are aware that we are currently having some struggles with our ASL interpretation. We assure you that we will upload a full ASL interpretive video post if it does not resume during this hour. So yeah, we can look at the slides. Um, you know, we have four slides here, and courtesy uh, Kevin Wilson. Um, for for uh, we stole this from his Twitter feed, and you can really see the difference between what's happened in Atlantic Canada and the rest of the COVID six um, the, the cases per day. You can just keep flipping through there, Michelle. Next slide. Um, active hospitalizations again, very similar um, differentiation between the, the the areas. And next slide. Deaths. Um, it's yeah. If you want to. Have one slide that really is a gut punch. This is it, and then finally, last slide, um, just a discussion of um, you know how how much they've had to have the the lockdown uh, with their strategy strategies, and generally they've um, they've managed to have a, a higher level of freedom throughout. So you can take those down, Michelle. Um, so. I acknowledge that that this is weird. This is super weird for a bunch of physicians from around the country to come together and say, "Hey, we 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 need to do better." I I I um I, I this is actually the second time I've been involved with this because our other organization, Mass for Canada, had a call for for national standards back in April of this year, um, which fall fell on deaf ears. But maybe now is the time with an election um, that this this can be brought forward again. I'll just point out that the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, Section 7 states, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and the right not to be deprived thereof, except in accordance with the principle, principles of fundamental justice. And we're, we've, you know, legal interpretations aside, from the letter of this, this is not occurring here. A kid in Halifax today is much, much safer, has much more security of the person than a kid in Calgary. Um, there are deaths occurring among Albertans today, if, whereas if they had lived in Halifax, people never would have died. Um, and so it's, it, it's really hard as a health practitioner to, to, to work under conditions 
where we know that the, the illnesses and the deaths that are, we are seeing are just the result of poor policy and of federalism. Um, and so that's why we're here today. We've gathered these esteemed guests. I'm going to turn it over to Michelle um, to do a round of introductions. And um, that's the end of my portion. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thank you very much, Dr. Vipond. I would like to start with our first special guest from Toronto, Ontario. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Vipond and uh, the team uh, putting this together. We appreciate the invitation. I want to acknowledge that uh, I'm on the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit, Anishinaabe, Chippewa, Hundaswani, uh, and Wendats, who have uh, uh, spawned First Nations, Inuit, and Métis uh, people um, and uh, offered the privilege for uh, myself and others to be here today. Uh, my name is Dr. Abdu Sharkawi. I'm an infectious disease uh, physician at the University Health Network and the University of Toronto. Uh, and I'm very hopeful that by having this sort of uh, dialogue with uh, many of my colleagues and, and other experts around Canada, uh, we can really help instigate a movement towards um, revitalizing the uh, structure uh, within which we provide uh, public health uh, and safety measures for everyone across Canada. I think it's become uh, quite seriously apparent that we are deficient in many, many areas and that our reactive approach of containment has been quite unsuccessful. We have to look towards building a future that is sustainable by preventing these things from happening and having the systemic infrastructure in place uh, to allow for a better sense of safety and security through public health across Canada. That has to be a mandate and an agenda that we work on together at all levels. Let's continue in the East with another doctor from Ontario. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Seema Marwaha, and I'm an internal medicine uh, specialist just down the street from Dr. Sharkawi at St. Michael's Hospital. And I am also um, a health journalist, and I run a website called Healthy Debate. Um, .ca. Um, and I think that, you know, on my frontline work here in Ontario, I've been treating COVID patients, but there's also been a really serious health communication problem. Um, the public right now, after almost two years of this, is confused, um, fatigued, and exhausted, and there seems to be almost no end in sight. Um, and I'm um, very excited to talk today and uh, have a chat with all of these amazing colleagues from across the country, because we all are in the same boat. And even though we have a piecemeal system of um, different provincial healthcare systems, and we're all doing our own thing, we really are all in this together. And we have to figure this out together. So thank you very much for having me. Staying in Alberta, or back to Alberta, I suppose, Dr. Asadi. Hi, I'm Dr. Leila Asadi. I'm an infectious diseases physician based in Edmonton. But for the past few years, I've been more focused on research uh, in the realm of public health and tuberculosis. And um, I am proud to say that I've been a part of the Protect Our Province group. And uh, it's been uh, lonely at times trying to advocate for um, appropriate COVID policy here in Alberta, um, but um, I feel very lucky to be surrounded by all these uh, wise panelists uh, where we can hopefully talk about how to 
improve policy, both in terms of getting out of this way, but um, for any kind of future um, health crises that we might face across the country. And going even further west to British Columbia. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm Carolyn Colin. I'm a professor of mathematics and a Canada 150 research chair at Simon Fraser University. And uh, so I'm an infectious disease researcher, but the tool that I use primarily in my research is uh, mathematical modeling and also genomic analysis. I think this is a really important conversation to have. And, and um, I do think we have some, some real policy challenges and that it would be great to have a more national conversation around COVID. I, I also think we need to carve a sustainable and realistic path out of this pandemic. So maybe we need to shift the conversation uh, towards that that sort of end game or endemic mode, but I don't think we're quite there yet. So I think it's it's a challenging set of conversations to have right now, and I'm looking forward to the panel and the discussion. Thank you. And going a little bit east towards Manitoba. Hi, and thank you for having me today. My name is Dr. Jillian Horton, and I am a general internist at the University of Manitoba, and I speak to you today from Treaty One land, the home of the Anishinaabe, Cree, um, Dakota, Dene, Métis, and the Oji Cree uh, peoples and ancestral lands. I have been involved in COVID advocacy uh, along with many of my colleagues here in Manitoba uh, since the early days of the pandemic, but our efforts particularly um, coalesced as a group around the fall of last year when it became clear that the situation in Manitoba was spinning out of control. And in our last two waves here in Manitoba, we have had a pattern of very late response to emergency developments. I'm happy to say that things are a little bit better here today uh, going into wave four. But what um, I have been most interested in is bringing colleagues together, speaking as a group, uh, working together, elevating other voices, speaking en masse. And absolutely, we have a, a significant communication problem in medicine. Often the way that we have been speaking as advocates is completely opposite to the ways in which we were trained to advocate. This is new territory for many of us, and yet so many of us on this call also believe that this is an absolutely fundamental obligation that we have as physicians to advocate for patients who cannot advocate for themselves. So as a physician, as a prolific writer of op-eds, and uh, as one of many voices of advocacy for the public, I am just delighted to be here with you today. Thank you so very much. And as we finished off our round of introductions, we will head back to Alberta. Hi, I'm Dr. James Talbot. I'm actually currently in Toronto, the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and the Mississauga of the Credit, and I'd like to thank them for welcoming us into their ancestral homelands in which they have spent generations and to whom they have uh, welcomed us to a better life. Um, I'm a former Chief Medical Officer of Health for Alberta and Nunavut. I was head of the Provincial Laboratory for Public Health uh, and involved in pandemic influenza planning in the early 90s. And um, 
I have been a member of the Edmonton Zone Medical Staff Association COVID strategic strategic COVID committee uh, for the better part uh, from November on. Uh, I too am looking forward to a national conversation on how to do better. If you take a look at the number of serious diseases that have jumped from animals to humans in, in the last 30 years, uh, MERS, SARS, COVID, and you can make the case that uh, HIV, although obviously not respiratory disease, is another one. Um, it is clear that we need to uh, continue to improve our game. We need to do better. And um, just to point out a couple of issues uh, that um, are evolving. Uh, one is that we continue to do, uh, we continue to be surprised for no good reason that uh, these kinds of epidemics have an inequity built into them that ensure that people who are of lower, lower income or who are marginalized in some way by society will suffer the most. We need to do better on that and we need to do better in combating mis and malinformation, which um, is a rapidly evolving area that is also a threat to people's health. So I look forward to the conversation. Thank you so very much. I'm going to bring everyone back into the stream as we begin this conversation today. We are going to start out with the question that prompted this panel to happen. And then we are going to take questions from folks at home as well as if there are any media question re requests. So does Canada need a national response and why? It's a free forum, friends. It's a panel. Have fun. I think the fact that we're here today suggests that that very much is the case. Um, you know, the, the pandemic has not preferentially affected one part of Canada. It's affected every single part of this country, whether it has been remotely populated or uh, densely populated, no matter what infrastructure has existed and what resources are plentiful in one area or not in another. Uh, this is the basics of public health in its in its most essential form is that principles need to be followed and they need to be universally applied regardless of where you are and i think unfortunately part of the, the big problem the biggest challenge i think in this pandemic is the fact that so much has been politicized and so much has been uh, designed to deflect responsibility between different layers of governance and jurisdictions uh, whether it's a federal one versus provincial or whether it's provincial versus municipal. And I think that dissolution of responsibility has done a grave disservice on so many levels to the public. I think it has eroded trust. I think it has created a lot of difficulty and confusion for people to understand where measures need to be taken and how aggressively they need to be implemented. And we've got to simplify things. I think it's quite clear that everyone is at risk from this disease in every part of Canada, from coast to coast to coast. It's time to do away with the regionalization and the politics of this and the deflecting of responsibility. And it's time to collaborate and to learn. What can we learn from the lessons of Atlantic Canada and their rapid testing and their early and proactive responses? What can we learn from, unfortunately, what happened in Alberta and, and BC uh, with respect to long-term care facilities not being managed appropriately or loosening restrictions around mask mandates, et cetera, et cetera. 
We've got to learn from each other. We've got to become much more collaborative and much less regional. And I think unless we do that, we're going to be in this perpetual cycle of trying to hide from COVID. And COVID will chase us down. And COVID doesn't really care about whether you're on one side of Alberta or the other side of Saskatchewan. It will find you and it does not discriminate. So we have to work together on all levels and collaborate and learn from each other and be humble. And it's okay to make mistakes as long as we learn from each other and decide that we're going to adapt and be flexible with our policy to move forward. I completely agree with you, Abdu. I think like um, when we don't work together, I think it's incredibly confusing for the public and us as practitioners to just keep up. I think the divisive messaging can be really confusing because when you hear something's happening in Alberta and something totally different is happening in the Maritimes, you know, the public splits and they're confused as to what is really the truth. And then the other thing, I think the biggest thing is that mistakes are repeated, positive stories and learnings are not shared and resources are wasted. And I mean, we're exhausted um, and we could really use with some conserving of resources, seeing as this is going to go on a little bit longer. And so I just want to say I echo everything. I mean, I think a national strategy is going to be incredibly challenging, but if there were ever a time to try, now would probably be the time. I absolutely agree with what both of you have said. And um, coming from Alberta, as I'm sure you're all aware of the challenges that we have had. And um, there are two examples of people outside of Alberta or um, activities outside of Alberta that I thought were really helpful for us. One of them was when the federal health minister uh, wrote a letter asking why Alberta was disbanding, tracking, tracing, and isolating. And I thought that was very powerful because it wasn't just uh, us physicians um, uh, and other uh, experts asking for help. It was um, having someone else and, and someone from the outside saying, you know, what is the rationale for this? The other thing that was extremely helpful for us was uh, the BC modeling groups modeling. Uh, our province wasn't providing that data to us. And um, I think it was uh, very beneficial and I'm very thankful for that modeling that uh, made it very clear that we were gonna be in big trouble. So just having access to that input and that brain power that exists from outside of Alberta, uh, you know, made, made an impact. Yeah, thank you so much for saying that. And, and I'm glad to know that was appreciated. You know, it's interesting because from the modeling point of view, you know, in a way that the need for a, a national conversation is kind of emphasized because there isn't anywhere in Canada where having 75 or 80 percent of the of the whole population vaccinated is going to lead to the end of COVID. So that that 80 percent will probably play out fairly similarly um, in most jurisdictions in Canada, with some differences according to you know region and how many people have already unfortunately um, acquired their immunity the other way uh, through natural infection. So I do think maybe modeling plays a role as part of that that national conversation, just in setting the the general stage. And and details will differ very much between regions and provinces. But that kind of fundamental point that eighty percent or seventy five percent of the whole population, or eighty five percent or more of the eligible population right now being vaccinated, is not going to be enough to counter Delta's very very high transmissibility. So hopefully we can we can support that national conversation through modeling. It is hard, you know, to see how how it could work, and maybe that's something we can explore. I'd love to hear all of your thoughts on it because public health is such a 
a matter of provincial jurisdiction here in Canada and, and different provinces have very different political pressures around the public health measures. And I think, you know, those are huge challenges, but the, the kind of fundamental infectious disease process is probably fairly similar and, and similar to American and, and European jurisdictions too, because we're similar populations. You know, I think one very interesting thing uh, happens as situations that are fluid change dramatically from province to province to province. We've all had multiple turns now at having the dubious distinction of being the worst place in Canada or the worst uh, place at the moment or or the the sort of ground zero of a particular day. And what I've really noticed is as that happens, we actually become less and less aware of what is going on elsewhere because all of our cognitive energy is required to focus on what is in front of us. Most of us are involved in direct care provision to patients and administrative roles in the hospital. So we essentially have to put blinders on in order to survive. And I think one of the things that happens as a result of that is we actually lose our panoramic view of some of those disparities that Dr. Vipon talked about at the beginning of the call, the radical difference right now in the kind of safety and environment a child going to school in one province might be able to expect compared to the lack of safety and the risk involved for a child going to school in another province. I would suggest that to some degree, that disparity and nuance has been lost because because we are all so focused on preserving uh, what we can in our immediate environments. And I think this is another way in which national strategy, national dialogue, um, and the really um, highly visible voice of uh, national government has been missing from so much of this. And we've also seen tremendous interpersonal dysfunction. All the relationships, just like family, that are difficult, that come out at times of stress in the holidays, we've seen the very same things happening here. We had um, an episode where the federal health minister was visiting the province, and our minister of health at the time was too busy, as per the media to meet with her. So all these things that at the end of the day, um, if we want to make progress, um, you know, the infrastructure is so weak when it comes down to uh, poor quality interpersonal relationships, the strain um, that is often the result of conflicting political ideology between the federal and provincial governments. And if it's ever been clear to us, um, as with Ontario, the ways in which the Ontario Science Table have been really useful to the province, we really need to find ways to separate the political um, arm of the response and the scientific arm of the response and to both fortify and elevate that in the coming years. Yeah, I would take maybe a little bit more mechanistic perspective on this um, while in agreement with the vast majority of what was just said. When the British North America Act was de declared was before the germ theory of disease. And so health was made a provincial responsibility, even though once you understand communicable disease, you understand that borders no longer exist. And um, at the same time, the federal government has a responsibility for emergencies in which more than one province is involved. And they have international requirements in terms of reporting and surveillance 
that they have to live up to. And so the bottom line is there needs to be a seamless system operating from the local level right through to the international and down the other way to ensure that Canadians get the protection that they need. And so, you know, that's, for me, that's a very powerful way of making clear that we're all related uh, in this country, a very indigenous co concept that we have all these relations uh, and that um, we need, we have responsibilities to one another and those stretch from the local right through to the international. And we need to be looking at all the ways to strengthen those that we can before the next one hits. I just want to pick up on that just, just for a second, because, you know, something really struck me while uh, Dr. Talbot was, was talking there, and it's, it's about the idea of borders. And I'm probably a bit unique in terms of where I've been across Canada. I was born in Alberta and I did my medical school at the University of Alberta. In fact, Dr. Talbot probably doesn't remember, but he gave me a fantastic lecture in the first week of medical school. So that means he's even way older than I am. Um, and I did further training uh, in BC. I, I lived in BC. I did my infectious diseases training there. I came to Toronto to do uh, my internal medicine residency and what I've seen over the course of this pandemic has been very it's been very jarring personally and very upsetting for me because I feel a real sense of um, allegiance a sense of loyalty and a real sense of, of of being at home in all of these places all of these places really hold a very special uh, part of my heart and when I see there being such divergent strategies uh, and different opinions and interventions being used in different parts uh, of Canada, um, it, it affects me personally. It saddens me. And I feel as though, uh, you know, this boy who, who feels a sense of loyalty and, and anchoring and home in all of these places should feel that same sense of security anywhere in Canada. And, and these jurisdictional boundaries and uh, the politicization that has developed to prevent moving forward and having constructive conversations is such a huge barrier. Communicable diseases do not have borders. We do need fundamental strategies and principles that have to be constructively put together so that kids that are going to school in BC, if they have to wear masks to keep them safe, they have to wear masks to keep themselves safe whether they're in Alberta or they're in Ontario or anywhere else. And we've got to have some degree of consistency out there. We've got to get away from this idea of health only being the purview of our provincial jurisdictions, because if there's ever going to be a time to re-examine where the role is for any kind of a federal, I don't even want to use the word mandate. I think mandate has been really politicized in an awful way. A federal mission, a mission statement, to say that we have to come together as a country and stop regionalizing things. This is the time to do it. We've got to fix our infrastructure and do it universally with sound principles from coast to coast to coast. That's missing. And until we do that, we're just waiting for the next pandemic to hit us and we're going to be right back where we started. And that may not be as far off as a lot of people think right now. So I don't disagree with you, really, um, but I do want to steer a, a little bit away from the assumption that if we had a na national strategy, it would necessarily look like what Atlantic Canada did. 
um, the, the largest provinces and arguably the most powerful ones who might be the most likely to shape a national strategy are probably Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, and BC. And our pandemic response has not been um, you know, what, what Atlantic Canada did. And, and arguably, you know, although the people are the same, and, and I take your point about you know, if schools are fundamentally, like the way North American schools run, if they are fundamentally super safe, they're probably fundamentally the same everywhere or fundamentally they need masks or, or whatever the measures are. But um, the act of closing borders to keep COVID at bay would look different in Ontario and Quebec than it would look in the Yukon territories or in Atlantic Canada. There are some meaningful differences and it's not clear to me that if we had to have one consistent national strategy that it would necessarily have landed on the best one. It may have because I think we did fall into a fallacy of pandemic versus economy, which of course, uh, you know, was a false dichotomy and that you can't have a really thriving economy if you keep having to go into lockdown and hopefully we now know this. Uh, but I do want to, I, I guess, you know, maybe it would be interesting to focus on what we think a great strategy would be um, rather than on whether it's one national strategy, because there's no point everyone being the same and having the same level of exposure and risk if the level of exposure and risk is terrible. In a way, it's better for Atlantic Canada to have protected its population than for no one to have done so. And that might. So what what is that counterfactual? What would have happened if we'd had to have one national strategy? Would it have been Doug Ford's strategy or would it have been BC's strategy? Like whose strategy would it have been? Um, it's not clear to me that it would have been rapid testing and closing borders. I think part of the problem, though, is there's this idea that short of having something like an Emergency Measures Act that harkens back to the War Measures Act of the early 70s, that there's nothing that we could do uh, from a federal point of view to try and bring everybody to the table. And I think that just does a disservice to a very important issue. So I, while I completely yeah. respect what you're saying, I think there's a real fertile opportunity here to share knowledge and not to look at it as my strategy is necessarily better than yours, but what could work more optimally and more consistently, at least with respect to universal principles. Because frankly, even from that point of view, we haven't seen consistency. We've seen completely different philosophies with respect to the importance of masking, for example, in younger kids in BC and for a greater part of the pandemic in Alberta compared to a lot of other parts of Canada. That's where I think you need to have a better level of consistency. And I think there has to be a dialogue that hopefully is led with a federal mission on that. I and on, oh, excellent. Thank you. I know I was just going to say, Dr. Marwa, on that note, I was exceptionally curious to know, we know where we've been, sort of. We sort of know where we are. So as a whole, how do we go forward? How do we save east of Alberta from being where Alberta is right now? How can we influence what is happening in Alberta at this moment in time so that spillover doesn't become even more epic than we are anticipating our numbers that will be released later today to be? I mean, when we're talking a national strategy, I don't think we need to necessarily go into the weeds. I mean, we're not even on the same page when it comes to basics. Like, I'm also an Alberta transplant. I went to the University of Alberta. I'm born and raised. I was back visiting my parents three weeks ago, and nobody was masking indoors, and there were large volumes of people, and I felt like I was in a different place in a different time. And it would be like going to BC, and all of a sudden, they've just decided not to wear seatbelts. 
Like it doesn't make sense. Um, and I think that we need to get on the same page with basics, with contact tracing, testing, isolation, rapid testing, ventilation, protecting our children, um, and masking. And I think that you know we should all work to have masking indoors for the foreseeable future become the norm and not the exception. It shouldn't be something that we take away and put back on when things are better or worse, like a barometer. Um, and if we can't, I feel like if we can't agree on those things and say, look, this is what the new normal is going to look like moving forward. I think to answer your question, the one thing I'll say is that we've been talking a lot um, over the past couple of years of when are things going to go back to normal. I think the discussion has to change a bit more to like, what is our new normal going to look like? And what are the steps that we all need to take to get there? Um, fully get that we're a diverse um, country, diverse communities. Um, we have different situations that need to be addressed that we have to be sensitive to. But there are some basic things that we should all agree on that we should all be doing. I think um, one of the interesting points here, your point about masking, you know, brings up, I'd love to hear how you all feel about droplets and microns and aerosols and airborne transmission. And I, I know someone mentioned the Ontario Science Table and uh, Layla mentioned the BC Modeling Group. I think it's connected to the role of having independent science and having transparent science. And that science should be one place where we can really have a national conversation and where we can coordinate. And we, we did have the Royal Society report on the excess deaths. We did have uh, reports like that. And I think we should be continuing to do that and supporting that and really trying to put pressure on, um, on the more political side to get the data for schools. We don't have data for schools. We've never really um, systematically for large numbers of schools done the testing that we need to do to look at transmission. There's a kind of public health, you know, prioritization of, well, if there's any possible way it could have been community transmission, that's the first choice and, and so on. And that can really affect what we think is going on with schools. So I think some of those conversations you know, if you believe in masking, it's probably because you believe in aerosols and you believe they play an important role. But early on, there were so many people, including many leading doctors who really said, um, droplets, droplets, droplets. We know it's close contact from the math side, even if most transmission event, even if most people who transmit did so with droplets, if those super spreader events are aerosols, that's enough. That's we could make a tremendous impact by stopping those. But I think those conversations could be national, and they're they're interesting conversations. They're really important, and unfortunately, we've let them get incredibly politicized. Both the aerosols and the schools have have suffered from that. Dr. Talbot, as a former chief medical officer of health, is there anything sort of within and without the medical community that humans like me who are sitting at home on their computer watching in their YouTube can do to help promote a conversation around the disparity of response and raise that as a national question in terms of keeping all of our tiny humans all of our not so tiny humans as safe as we can? I, I think there are uh, things that the average person can do. I mean, it starts with, uh, I think, requiring that governments learn from this experience. I mean, we've had royal commissions in the past uh, uh, that have been very effective at taking a look at a situation that um, got worse and then make recommendations as to how it, 
uh, how it could be improved. And I think that there are a lot of people who would like to find some kind of meaning in everything that they've sacrificed over the last 18 months. And the most meaningful thing would be to uh, create a, a place that's safer. And, you know, they, the, there's a number of big things and little things that could be looked at. I mean, Carolyn's point about uh, putting the debate around aerosols versus droplets to bed. Uh, that would be something that could be done reasonably quickly with a small amount of investment. Um, there were issues that came up all across the country about the independence of chief medical officers of health from the political process. And so a national debate, including federal legislation that declared that chief medical officers of health cannot be subject to arbitrary dismissal and that during times of public health emergencies that they are required to report to the legislature as a whole. It would be an interesting thing to take because too often it's politicized when in fact COVID affected everybody, whether they were liberal, NDP, block, it doesn't matter. And so it doesn't make sense in times of emergency that the chief medical officer of health is answering only to the, the government in charge. That there are some other issues around improving our surveillance. And uh, one thing that we really need to do is to harness the outrage of the number of older people that we've lost before their time in the warehouses that were continuing care across the country. We, we, we need to do better and we need to do better every flu season and we need to do better every year. I will say one thing though, is that um, amongst the positives, uh, certainly compared to 1917, we've done a much better job working with Indigenous peoples to make sure that they weren't subject to the same kind of mortality um, as they would have been before. And so uh, it's not perfect. There's lots of work that still needs to be done on that, but it's at least one area that we could point to and say, let's, let's continue to build on, on that so we can get even better. Dr. Horton, I could tell that you had something to say, and then we'll go over to Dr. Asadi. You know, just um, one thing that Dr. Talbot said earlier really struck me as important. And he was talking about the history, you know, of how the current systems that we have evolved. And it's very interesting, you know, all of us are um, at different stages in our career, but sometimes it can be difficult even when we look back to significant things that have happened during the course of our professional lives. Uh, for some of you, that might be the Creever Inquiry. For others of us, it's uh, the Inquiry into SARS how it was handled, things like that, we very quickly forget the learnings, the tremendous suffering and loss of life that was incurred. And we often find that about a decade later, we barely even remember what the central conflict was if we ourselves were not directly involved in those events. And I've been thinking over the last few days, um, reading some of the 
articles that have been going around on social media about similar cognitive errors that were made historically around transmission of diseases like cholera, or even around some of the long-term consequences in terms of immune system function uh, when we allow people to contract measles. And it just reminds me that when we do not know our history, whether that is the academic history of our profession or uh, the medical history of the um, uh, field that we specialize in, we really are doomed to repeat a lot of those same mistakes. And it, just as we heard the allusion to the COVID is airborne, the slow uptake for understanding the degree to which that has been um, a big part of disease propagation and spread, you know, we are really replaying these same cognitive errors over and over and over. So part of our learning as a profession and as a society coming out of this, you know, one of the ideal outcomes from for me would be a bigger understanding of the role of just, you know, our own cognitive biases, our own propensities to want to think that things are fine, our own difficulties in changing our minds. And I think we really have to build those things for us as academics and physicians as well into our training, uh, because otherwise we are just repeating so many of the very same mistakes that have been, been made in medical and academic history over and over and over. And there's no doubt that it's contributed to the loss of life. Dr. Asadi? So I think absolutely um, there are countless things that we hopefully will learn from all this, but um, for us being in the midst of our Delta wave, which might end up being our worst, um, there is not, uh, we need to learn quickly and things need to be happening now. And so that uh, I'd like to kind of talk about what I think that we can be doing to address this current crisis. And uh, I think it's important to differentiate what politicians and politics can do and what we in the medical or public health sphere can do. So I think from the political side, um, understandably, perhaps there's, um, you know, I'm a bit cynical about what may be possible politically, but um, from the federal government, some of the things that they could absolutely be doing, and I think we should be advocating for to be happening immediately are things like paid sick leave. That's something that the federal government can do. Um, in addition, you know, things like provision of the rapid tests, which they did, and now we need to be seeing them deployed uh, within the provinces. So that's from the political angle. And of course, I, I think we can also, as healthcare professionals, um, advocate or encourage uh, non-healthcare professionals to advocate to the government. Um, from the public health angle, I think that the, or the medical angle, I think it's really important that we very loudly say, look, the COVID is airborne and we should be addressing things like ventilation. We should be pushing things for, for filtration. We should be pushing for CO2 monitoring and we should be advocating for better masks. And those are all things that you don't necessarily require a federal mandate for the federal government to do, but we as professionals can be doing um, and, and pushing for and trying to do so both locally, provincially and federally, just to kind of spread the word in forums like this so that people are aware but the last thing I think is recognizing that there's the science and then there are the values that we can be advocating for. And um, what has been missing is a discussion of the kind of values we wanna stand for. Someone earlier mentioned this dichotomy between um, economics and health uh, or business and, and hospitals not being overrun. And I think that uh, we can come together and say, what are these shared values? 
Who do we want to be as a country? Are we going to protect the elderly? Are we going to make sure that there aren't these you know, massacres in our long-term care facilities? Are we going to make sure that children don't unnecessarily become infected when we have wonderful mitigating measures to offer them? And so uh, it, it's, it's the science, but it's also what we want to stand for and who we want to be and what are the values that we want to advocate for. Dr. Horton had mentioned earlier how it is easier when you are in a jurisdiction that is not under eminent threat to feel as if we are through COVID, especially in regions that have had more of a COVID is done, it's endemic, don't worry, everything will be fine type of response. Um, with that disparity and with us currently being in a federal election, I guess for all of the viewers at home, COVID is still a real problem, yes? And it should be something that is coming up in national debates and on the minds of our national candidates? Or no, is everything good and are we into endemic time? I, I realize speaking to all of you that that might it's, it's a question that I keep hearing a lot. And so while we have this opportunity of this cross-national group, I would love to know, is COVID still a thing? Should we be talking about it as we go into the September 20th election? Uh, yes. <laughs> so to just summarize, I think to speak for everyone. Um, but, you know, you do, I think, allude to one of the central paradoxes. And again, this is the reason why I keep coming back to cognitive error. I think our behavioral psychologists and um, so many other folks have really been key for helping people to understand their own responses to, you know, sometimes what can seem like simple, obvious problems, but we our thinking can get in our own way. So this is, of course, one of the superficial paradoxes of COVID management, that when you're doing a really good job of suppressing uh, community transmission and managing your local situation well, your case numbers typically drop. And then people say, what is the problem? Why are we doing all this? And the connection is lost between the fact that in these times, when our numbers are low, it's typically our reward for having done a good job. And the reason things are low and stay low is because we're continuing to enact successful mitigation uh, measures. So for example, in Manitoba right now, um, we have a test positivity rate, I think that just the new one came out today, I think in Winnipeg, it's about 1.4%. And when you look at our last couple of waves, we had times of sitting well above 10% and up to 500 cases a day in a province of 1.4 million. And this becomes one of the paradoxes. People say, well, 40 cases a day, big deal. Why is the province closed? The 40 cases a day are a result of, and first of all, our province is not closed, actually, where businesses are open, people do require proof of vaccination to dine in restaurants, to go to movie theaters. Um, mask mandates have been reenacted in the province as well in all schools, K-12. That's our reward. And even our business communities are being vocal and saying, we want our businesses to stay open. Therefore, we are in support of this because they've recognized that good mitigation measures can coexist with the and and must coexist actually with the health of the economy. They perpetuate the second. So this is one of the things. And again, um, 
when Seema talked earlier about, you know, our messaging and our communication, this is a thing that we, I think, along with journalists and academics and so many others are tasked with continually helping to translate what seems like a conflict is actually proof that we're doing um, a good job in the provinces where things are going well, but it is a real target because it becomes something that people uh, who want to downplay the seriousness of COVID um, and the criticality of continuing with these mitigation measures that for the vast part are all still compatible with us having a healthy economy and living very good lives. We have to be ready to, to deconstruct the false messaging when people say, well, this is an overreaction. This is our reward. And in Manitoba right now, because of a pivot in terms of our previous strategies for dealing with wave two and wave three, and wave three, by the way, we were the only province in Canada to have to airlift our ICU patients to adjacent provinces. It was a disgrace. But now we are seeing a different strategy. And we're proof that when provinces change strategy, that we can reduce the loss of life, we can reduce um, the risk to those who cannot yet be vaccinated, i.e. our children under 12, and that it is possible to achieve a different ending. I just want to pick up on that really quickly, because I think it's just such a critical point that, that Jillian just made about what I think is elevating the role and the prioritization of public health, period. And we can do that. We can do that with our voices as healthcare professionals. And we can certainly advocate that that's done at every level of government. People didn't really know much about public health before this pandemic. And the reason is you don't hear about public health in the news if everything is going swimmingly well. But when you're hearing about public health constantly, it means you're in trouble because it means that the, the, the very underpinnings on which you are keeping everybody safe in the midst of a very serious and lethal communicable disease, they're not functioning very well. And so we have to do a much better job of making everybody understand that, yeah, you don't get a big blue glowing mark on your forehead that says everything is going fine. Um, if public health is doing well, you stay healthy. Schools don't close. Businesses don't collapse. Lockdowns don't happen. All of these things occur only if public health is prioritized as it should. And let's not forget that in Ontario especially and in a lot of other provinces, not long before this pandemic started, public health funding was cut to the bone. Let's not forget that. Let's remember that that's something we definitely have to advocate strongly against we need to prioritize where our resources are going and where we're investing. And that's something that really, really cannot be ignored if we're going to get healthier moving through this pandemic, never mind preventing the next one. Dr. Horton talks about the um, cognitive biases. And I think a bias that we have suffered in Alberta a lot is just optimism, optimism. We keep thinking optimism bias, oh, it's going to be fine. Things are going to be better. And I would just say that it's so essential that we finally stop underestimating this virus um, and, and, and just take it very, very seriously. It's proven over and over again that um, it's, it's, it's too soon to say that it's endemic. Just do all the things that we know we can do to address it because uh, to, to, to underestimate it, you end up in, in the situation that we're in. So I think that's, that's a kind of advice we really need to know. So, Dr. Asadi, as we get ready to say goodbye, I'm going to put all of you on the spot for a quick one sentence. 
Now, we've been up, we've been down. We are going into the collective up of a Delta wave. Hopefully not anything beyond a Delta wave. We will see what happens. Hopiism, it's a problem. But if you were talking to your mother's sister's cousin's aunt who has been under a rock for the last two years, they have no idea what has been happening. You can tell them 20 seconds worth of like bullet point. Some of them will end up being the same, which is perfect. What are you going to leave that cousin, sister's grandmother's aunt from under the rock with? Starting with Dr. Asadi, and then we're just going to quickly go right through everyone. Okay, I'd say um, it's a good thing that you're under a rock because a very bad virus came and um, showed us all the weaknesses that we have in our society and all the weaknesses that we have in our public health system. But um, actually towards the end of it, as the Delta wave in Alberta was becoming worse and worse, we all came together and we implemented rapid tests and ventilation and filtration and gave everyone really good masks and gave everyone paid sick leave. And we learned the necessary lessons that we needed to learn as a country. Thank you so very much. I'm just going to keep going through, folks. We're going to get everybody in just that little bullet point of a slide. Okay, I'm going to take a different tack and say, okay, you've been living under a rock. There's a new virus. It's very dangerous. Um, it's impacted everything in society, across our society. And the most important thing you need to do is go out and get a vaccine. The next most important thing you need to do is wear a mask. That immunity from that vaccine will build over the coming weeks after you go and you have it today. And that will help protect you and it will help protect everyone around you and help us get to a normal, a more normal, back to normal or a new normal that we can live um, with our social activities and all the things that we've missed over the past 18 months. Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much. And just slip, flipping through everybody solo layout wise, my apologies for chubby thumbs. Okay. <laughs> um, I would say three things. So the first thing I would say is vaccinate. Make sure you get your vaccine, your two doses. Make sure everybody around you gets that vaccine to cocoon you, uh, the ones you love and the people you don't know. Secondly, you've got to mitigate. Do everything you can to reduce your risk of exposure, um, especially knowing that there are people in our community, uh, especially those children under 12 who cannot yet be vaccinated. And finally, I would emphasize advocating. We need regular people, the moms, the teachers, the dads, community members, lawyers to speak to the charter rights issues, engineers to speak to ventilation and filtration. Advocate, advocate, advocate. Our future is at stake um, and we can bring this to a conclusion more quickly by doing those three things. Well, um, I would say that if she really was under a rock, I'd have to give a bit of context. And I'd say that we face globally a once in a hundred year threat that at this point has killed four and a half million people. That Canada responded reasonably quickly in each jurisdiction and the mortality compared to global standards was relatively low because we all pulled together to protect one another when there was no vaccine and no antiviral possible. And that we continued that success uh, until the new variants showed up and we did not pivot quickly enough to be able to keep them under control. 
but that by and large, uh, we, uh, when the vaccines became available, we immunized as rapidly as we could and with as much equity as we could. Uh, and that globally, uh, I think a lot of people would have preferred to have ridden this out in Canada than any other country in the world. However, that it did reveal that we need to do better uh, because the next virus might move faster and it might be more lethal and the, the, our system barely survived this one. I want to echo what uh, Dr. Talbot said. It's the first time in over a hundred years that we've had the best, worst example of a situation where individual decisions and individual resources determine what happens to everyone, everyone around us. Your decision to mask, your decision to get vaccinated, your decision to apply proper public health practices everywhere for, can determine what happens to someone literally on the other end of the globe. There's never been a more shocking example of our social contract and our important role for providing equity, creating a safe survival situation for everyone around the world has been challenged like it has been. You need to do those things. Remember, it's not a euphemism. It is a global pandemic because until everyone is safe, no one is entirely safe. Please wear a mask, get vaccinated, mind your distance, be very careful about who you're gathering with, get information that is credible. And remember, the chain of transmission of a virus can spread very rapidly, so can the chain of protection. So there's an upside if we do things the right way and buy into this collective. Oh, do I get to close it out? Um, I would say that, you know, you live under a rock, you don't live on a rock, you are not an island. Your health and other people's health are inextricably linked. And so do everything you can to keep yourself safe and the people safe around you, which means wear a mask, it makes sense to, and get vaccinated. The second point I would say is that when you get yourself up to speed, please don't just consume media by reading the headlines. Try to go a little bit more in depth and read um, the full um, piece that's written so you can get a sense of the landscape. And then the third is advocate, advocate, advocate for the things that you care about. This pandemic laid bare a lot of structural and racial inequities in our system that were there before this pandemic happened and will be there when this pandemic is over. And we need to fix those problems. And it's hard because we're always in crisis mode, um, but there are some really deep seated things in our system in every province that we need to fix. And those things need to be addressed and the work doesn't stop when this pandemic ends. Thank you all so very much for joining us today. There is never enough time, and I am so excited that Pop AB got to present its very first national conversation on how we as a whole come together and try to work our way beyond COVID-19. So thank you very, very much for giving of your time. And thank you, everybody at home, for joining us. Um, please remember to share your views with the national candidates in your riding. This week is a really important week. Um, debates are happening both in English and French. And as much as we may wish to say goodbye to COVID-19 in Canada, I think that our expert panels from across the nation today have made it very clear that COVID is not ready to say goodbye to us yet. And we need action on the part of our leaders to ensure a safe, healthy future for our provinces, our country, and across the entire globe. 
And on a closing note for all Canadians celebrating Rosh Hashanah, we wish you safe festivities filled with reflection and joy. Pop AB is a grassroots initiative, and we would like to thank our tireless volunteers who have not only been giving copious quantities of their time from medical doctors to computer programmers to graphics designers, um, but also who have been giving us so much financial support for our multilingual translations. We will be back on Wednesday, September 8th, 2021, for an urgent and timely briefing on healthcare capacity in Alberta at our usual time in our usual place. Thank you again so much, everyone, for being with us today. And until then, I wish you all an excellent evening and stay safe. Thank you.